Hello, welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson, and we have another great show for you this week. We're back to our regularly scheduled programming. Cosmo Macero and I are talking business and news of the week on 321 Go. Then Hugh Drummond and I are joined by Doug Banks, editor of the Boston Business Journal, where we talk about the intersection of business and politics. And in two minutes with Tom, our CEO, Tom O'Neill, talks about the ramifications of just the idea that the media is the enemy of the state. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three important topics in the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, is there room in the marketplace for another video streaming service? Two of the biggest names in business and entertainment think so. We'll explain. And what can you learn about event management and public relations from the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Well, it turns out quite a lot. I'll give my eyewitness report. Finally, Hollywood action hero Steven Seagal has been appointed to a top government ambassadorial post in Russia by the Russian government. Yes, this is really happening. We'll talk about it. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on Air. Cayenne, how are you? And hey, you know what? This is the 10th episode. episode of 321 Go and the weekly OA on Air podcast. Time flies. When you're having fun. Absolutely. Many more milestones to come. Okay, then. Let's get to it. All right. First up, media mogul Jeffrey Katzenberg recruited former eBay and HP CEO Meg Whitman to partner on a new venture called New TV. They've raised a billion dollars from serious investors. Disney, Warner Brothers, Entertainment One, other firms have helped them raise the money. It's going to focus on high-quality, short-form video, and it sounds like serialized content, meaning a longer production split up into short pieces. And... This is their play. There's a lot of momentum and excitement behind it. I don't know how much room there is in the marketplace for another live streaming service if it doesn't really distinguish itself from Netflix and Hulu and all the others. Well, there's a billion dollars behind it. So somebody or lots of other people feel differently. Yeah. Um, people with money like the idea. Yeah, I don't quite get it uh, uh, yet. But my, my guess is they are counting on people's very short attention spans, uh, capitalizing on that a little bit, and hoping that they can break through maybe in some ways others haven't. Whether or not there's room, I don't know. I, I, I tend to think that there's not room for new stuff all the time, and then it comes in and it does really well. So I'm probably not the, the best person. If you're thinking people can get through a longer piece of content in serials and snippets and pieces where they can fit it in during the day, I think it makes kind of sense for me. I read books that way a lot now on my Kindle app, on my phone. I'll read snippets of a book here and there. I actually get more reading in that way. So that makes a little bit of sense. But there's tremendous competition. The cost of content, they're going to be, they're going to be licensing content, so they're not, they're not going to compete directly with producers. Um, it, 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 there's definitely a lot of ifs here, um, but there's a lot of excitement behind it. Whitman says this allows us to bring together the best of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. I don't think they're the first to try and do that. In fact, there's a really good show called Silicon Valley. Yeah, I, I'm still not entirely clear on what it is, but I'm, hey, let's be excited about it. All right, that's new TV. Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman will be watching it.
Okay, the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, held their annual enshrinement ceremony this past weekend. I, lucky for me, was there. It took my 15-year-old son. Terrific trip. Long drive. Long Canton, road Ohio trip. Ohio's pretty far away. Uh, even longer ride back. But it was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing, a terrific, terrific pilgrimage to the uh, the breadbasket of, uh, of, of, of pro football, the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Um Made a lot of observations. The big news going in, and, and now still afterwards, is Terrell Owens. He was the eighth of uh, eight members um, who were inducted this year. Did not show up. Said he wasn't going to show up. Went to his alma mater in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and had his own sort of ceremony. The Hall of Fame now is saying, you know what? We're going to put an end to that and, and create a process through which, before the final vote, you have to commit to attending the ceremony. Kyan, what do you think of that? I think that's silly. I think you can't really put that on people. If people are bestowed and deserving of an honor, whether or not they show up to receive that honor should not be sort of a, a qualification to receive it. Um, I kind of go back and forth. On the one hand, I think he should have been a little bit more gracious and taken the higher road because by not showing up, he essentially proved everybody almost right yeah. as to what he believes is, is why he wasn't you know, inducted sooner. On the other hand, he went to his alma mater where I think he felt more welcome and appreciated, and um, and that's how he wanted to do it. I don't know. If you receive an award, shouldn't it be on you how you get to receive it? Yeah. A little I bit? Say, I, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that they will go forward and make these changes. I, I don't think people will protest. I think it will work out fine. But the Hall of Fame, and once you're there and you see all the, these 318 busts, you realize, you know, this is this is forever, right? It's The, the Hall of Fame is about lifetime achievement, and it's about – memorializing these players forever. And Shryman's just a moment. It's a big moment. It's important. Yeah. But it's an event. He's there. Know? It's an event. And, and, and I kind of want to talk about that because uh, it was fascinating just as a fan, as a father being there with my son, but also as someone involved in public relations and communications and events, seeing the roles these different people played. Right. So they inducted eight people. And I'll go through them kind of quickly. The first one, Bobby Brazil. Uh, Dr. Doom from the Houston Oilers teams in the 70s. Great player. He was kind of, you got to have a big opener. He was a big opener. He was a big superstar and a big hero for a lot of people. So that was terrific. Gave a terrific speech. Wasn't too long. Next was Bobby Beathard. His role was, it was like the breather. He, his message was, nobody's here to see me. I get that. Thanks a lot. <laughs> it's, I'm thrilled. He was a terrific and very important and historic NFL executive. Uh, helped a number of different Super Bowl teams uh, uh, in, in helping to put those teams together. He was in and out in like two and a half minutes. God bless the, the guy. Best. God as an bless event, him. As an event person, that's, that's right. the best. The next one was the le- was was the guy the the, uh, the, the teacher the lesson giving the le- Jerry Kramer great player Green Bay Packers giving the lessons about and and he, and he went on and on and, and it was like okay okay Jerry we love you and he and he, he 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 had he talked about this this momentous phrase he kept saying if you will you can. If you will, you can. And I'm like, this caused my my. This is so important. He's like, Dad, what does that mean? And I said, I have no idea, but it's so provocative sounding. I'm just gonna keep thinking it and saying it on the ride home. If in fact, across Godforsaken Pennsylvania, in the middle of the night, I was saying, because if you will, you can. Because if you don't, you're gonna, you're gonna veer off and, uh, onto the side of the road. So that's Jerry Kramer. Then now Brian Erlacher, my favorite. Guy spent 15 years in the NFL, one of the greatest linebackers ever. Never said a word. Didn't even know what his voice sounded like. 
He wouldn't shut up. He gets up there. I'm finally going to start talking. His family, his teammates, his opponents, everything. It was great hearing the guy talk, and he would not stop. And it was, you know, he got 15 years worth of words in that he never got because he didn't like to talk to the media. So that was terrific. And then the next one, probably the best speech of the night from Brian Dawkins, Philadelphia Eagles. Terrific, terrific player. Um, Underdog, small in stature, but played like a beast. He was the preacher, and he got people going. He gave the most. And on a night when he was up there with Ray Lewis, right, he, he outshined everyone with the ability he had to get people fired up as a spiritual figure, right? And that was great. Now, the next guy, Randy Moss. That's why we went there. One of the greatest receivers, if not the greatest receiver of all time. Number two behind Jerry Rice, right? Randy Moss, uh, uh, inducted on the first ballot, came in, wore a tie with all the victims of police violence against the black community. And in his press conference afterwards, talked about that. An alternative and important story. His speech was very, was terrific, but he was sort of the newsmaker. In fact, that was the news the next day. Randy Moss, the tie he wore uh, was it. And, and he served in that role, and it was really terrific. And then the peace day resistance was Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis, Ray Lewis did not give a speech. Ray Lewis gave a TED Talk. Literally, he got up there at the podium, walked away, put on a headset microphone, and delivered a, a, a rambling, you know, 50-minute TED Talk about everything and anything under the sun. And his role was just to be Ray Lewis. And his role was to be at the end of the night because half the people were going to leave who weren't his fans because they're like, we got to get back to the hotel. It's late. You can't get an Uber around here. It's Canton, Ohio. God knows. So it was a lot of fun. And it was a tremendous event. But these individual players sort of fit their roles within the event, fulfilled them, and, and, and it was really quite exciting. And, and my son and I had a terrific time. One word of advice, if you're going, it's a great trip. It's a great weekend to go uh, on a tournament week every, every summer, but you don't have to wait till then. Take I-90 all the way out, go through Buffalo, go to Niagara Falls, and then come back the same way. Do not go across central Pennsylvania in the <laughs> middle of the night because you will feel like you are never getting home. Okay, one-time Hollywood action hero Steven Seagal, also a martial artist, has been appointed a special envoy to the United States by the Kremlin in Russia. Now, let me get the important backstory just on the table really quickly. He has, he's from, Seagal is from Russian descent. He has dual citizenship. He's very active in martial arts and MMA um, activities, as I understand, uh, that, that bring him to, uh, to, to Russia. So he has a lot of cultural and, 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 and sort of business and connections and ties and family ties to Russia. So there's the backstory. But Cayenne, he has been essentially appointed to an ambassadorial post, an envoy, uh, on a, 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 a peacekeeping mission by the Russian government. It's, it's kind of unusual, wouldn't you say? I think it's unusual in a number of ways. It's also hard for me to take that seriously because it's Steven Seagal, and as you said, he's best known for being an action hero. Uh, all of the stories that talk about this talk about his martial arts skills as sort of like, some sort of a qualification that got him here, and I'm confused by the entire thing, and all it makes me think of is Steven Seagal, Russia in the U.S., and Dennis Rodman in North Korea in the U.S. 
Yeah, it's it, it's there, there. There definitely is an analogy there. By the way, Above the Law, his breakthrough film was awesome, right? It was a, it was a terrific, terrific movie. And then he had the terrific movie on the submarine. Well, maybe it's not important to acknowledge that, but I'm doing it anyway. I think you're just having a fan moment. That's totally fine. It's fine. I have no but idea it, what you're, you're talking about. You're right. About, it, I mean, the context for all of this is his martial arts skills, as if being a peace envoy requires a black martial belt. arts skills. Maybe it does. Yeah. I mean, maybe things go wrong. Maybe things go sideways. It's also apparently what brought him and Putin together, him and his band. He's also in a band, in case people didn't know that. Steven Seagal has a band. Yep. They were playing for Putin. That's, I think, how they met. They bonded over this love of martial arts and black belts. And I, I don't know. The whole thing is just so preposterous. Well, to well, me. We're going we're gonna to obviously see how it plays out. There was already some controversy because he has called Vladimir Putin one of the greatest world leaders, if not the greatest world leader alive today. Meaning, yes, President Trump, who, by the way, he also he's likes, also a fan of, is, is 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 secondary in his mind to Vladimir Putin. Nonetheless, there you go, Steven Seagal, special envoy to the U.S., appointed by Russia. Okay, then that's going to do it for this week's edition of Three, Two, One, Go. Kyan, a pleasure as always, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me. All right. 321GO is recorded in Studio 1OA, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Hugh Drummond here. I'm a senior vice president at O'Neill & Associates. And I'm joined by Kyan Isaacson. Hello. And Doug Banks, editor-in-chief of the Boston Business Journal. Hello. Good morning. Um, thanks for coming into our studios today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Doug, thanks for coming in. Um, so you've run the Boston Business Journal as editor for four years now. And uh, you've been a Boston journalist for, for much longer. Um, Everything moves at such a rapid speed. What are what are you seeing? What are the changes that that surprise you? I mean, Amazon, GE, the the seaport. Where should we be looking next for the kind of rapid changes that are that have taken place in the city? That's a great question. Yeah, I've been here since 1998, um, and uh, I've worked at both the Boston Business Journal when I first got here. Then I went to Fast Company magazine, which Fast Company had been based over in the North End. So in 2000, 2001, right at the height of the dot-com boom, I was at Fast Company, which was a national magazine at that time covering what was called the new economy and uh, rode that sort of wave right down to October of 2001 after September 11th, after the economy had crashed. Um, so I've been through a couple of cycles now. And uh, your question is a good one because I I do. I've often said to folks, like I find that the velocity at which news is coming at us and the volume at which it's coming at us is faster than it's ever been. It's um, just the the way we get information today, whether it's through social media, the way we share information today, um, the way my inbox looks today compared to 15 years ago, 10 years ago. It's 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 really insane just how much information is being shared all the time. And then, you know, when you look at the media, the newspaper companies like ours at the Business Journal or when I was at Mass High Tech in the mid-2000s through before we merged Mass High Tech into the Business Journal in 2012, um, there are fewer and fewer journalists, right? I think we have half the number of journalists in this country that we did 15 years ago, right? Maybe maybe fewer than that. And yet the, the pace of information is faster than it's ever been. So you know, the, the honest answer is we can't really keep up. 
right? It's just hard to keep up. So there's news that's being missed and news that's being lost all the time, which is a shame. More specifically in Boston and the economy and questions like Amazon and GE, uh, I, I don't even know where, what the next thing will be because I didn't, you know, I don't know that anybody expected Amazon to say, hey, I'm going to drop 50,000 jobs over the next 20 years on some, you know, lucky city, right? Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, when you think of the cycles, I'm expecting this cycle to end any day and then it keeps going and going and going. I think most economists would say we're on borrowed time and over the next year we might watch, you know, watch it unwind in some way. So it'll be, you know, I think the next chapter will be probably some kind of correction, but I don't know that we'll see that for maybe another year or so. So we've still got another year of hot. And that goes for the construction boom too. I mean, I, I think it's the same thing. We all have been looking around saying we can't keep building like this. We can't keep, and yet we do. We've been in the maybe seventh inning stretch plus for a while now um, with almost still no end in sight, at least not right away. There's still high rises going up and there's still, Absolutely, you know, yeah. bulldozers and cranes all over the city skyline. Yeah, we have a feature we call Crane Watch where we literally look at every major construction project in you know Boston, Cambridge and a couple of the surrounding cities and... Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. And we also have 40 other business journals across the country. And so I, I talk to the editors there and I, and I read a lot of their work. And Boston's not even the hottest market. I mean, if you look at a city like Nashville or, you know, Atlanta's still hot. And some of these other southern cities, it's, it's really, it's remarkable, the number of cranes that are up. But Boston, too. Um, the construction worker shortage right now is, is at an all-time high. I mean, unemployment, obviously, the rate, 3.9%. Um, they just announced that last, you know, what last week for for the June month. It's uh, it's or July, I guess. It was crazy uh, the unemployment rate, how tight it is, and in the trades like construction, I think that you're really, really seeing it. Cost of steel with the Trump tariffs, um, so the the cost of construction is higher than it's ever been. But you're, like you said, there's no no end in sight. Yeah, it's crazy. It, the other thing is, um, you know, we we have. So many more international flights out of Logan. Uh, you know, news this week about a future flight to Korea mm-hmm. uh, direct. And, you know, I'm sure that between the, the top-notch universities that we have in the Commonwealth and, and uh, healthcare and, um, and now you have direct access uh, with flights, that's all contributing to this. Yeah, Boston is really a global city in a way that it just wasn't, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Both, um, you know, in the, uh, in the real estate industry, for example, just the, the number of foreign investors that are buying buildings as investments or, you know, the Millennium Tower and the number of foreign nationals who are taking money from China and other countries and, you know, and they're buying those, you know, I mean, multi-million dollar condos, they're buying them as an investment unit. And, uh, and they're making 30% mm. over in the course of one year, right? Um, you know, and then you see news like Boeing coming into Boston with a, a major research presence over the next year um, because of a partnership uh, with MIT to do drone research for taxi drones and cargo drones. And um, I mean, you, you know, Boeing is one of the major national employers, you know, like an Amazon or like a GE that didn't have a presence in Boston until now. So um, I would expect if I had to make a prediction that there will be, you know, another company like a Boeing that would make, you know, make an entrance into Boston over the next year because let's face it, it's a pretty safe bet. Every, you know, every six months we get another major brand wanting to be here with access to our talent, with access to the, to the economy that's here. 
It's going to get even more crowded. Yeah, that is, that is true. <laughs> With the people come the traffic. Yeah, the MBTA better uh, better get itself fixed quick because the T is already as crowded as it can be for sure. Yeah, that is true. It, let me let me um, ask another uh, question. Um, on our podcast, we we frequently touch on the nexus between politics and business, and in in Boston and in different issues like that. Um, We've seen over the past year plus a number of corporate executives, CEOs weighing in um, on political issues that in years past they would avoid. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. I mean, we we saw um, uh, Delta uh, Delta CEO spoke out after the Parkland shootings and in, in the the NRA discounts that that the airline offered. Uh, United Airlines, their their CEO spoke out after the family separation policy. Um, I'm just curious for as you know, business editor, what do you think about that trend? Is it a trend? And um, what what are the new boundaries? That's a great question. I think that uh, I think that the rise of social media and social media savvy companies can use platforms to their advantage. So there are some CEOs like Starbucks, for example, where they founded the company on a set of principles and they want to hold those, you know, hold those principles and they want to go public with those principles. And when you have a a president like a President Trump who's very polarizing, then you're going to get one side or another, you know, making uh, making statements. Uh, You know, Boston, obviously, we're very progressive city. Our business leaders are very progressive. So you're going to see um, you know, Boston business leaders are going to be pretty vocal uh, against things that, uh, especially for a more conservative government like we have right now. You know, but interestingly, um, a lot of the the sort of tax reform and some of the business friendly policies that this Trump administration has brought in, you're not seeing a lot of business people talk about any of that because it's working for them, right? I mean, there's companies that are making uh, with the new tax reform policy, they're going to make money hand over fist. And you're not hearing a word. They're not saying a peep because they don't want this to go away. And they don't want to gloat. No, exactly. <laughs> no. And then that's what, you know, that that's the downside. So I think that there's an upside and a downside. And, and you know, some companies and corporate executives are smart about it. And then you hear about a couple of those who, who are not so smart and they get, you know, knocked down a peg or fired. I, I think the social media aspect of that is really important because some of them, their comments are just a tweet. It's not a, a public statement that's put out. You know, I'm thinking, um, and I'm drawing a blank on the company that owns Ambien, but after the whole debacle there, you know, they just tweeted, like, you know, our Ambien is not known to cause racist side effects. It wasn't a formal statement, but it was certainly a statement that was heard around the world um, that I would imagine, and I could be, I'm speculating that if Twitter didn't exist, if social media didn't exist, how many of these companies would stay silent because they wouldn't go to the trouble to put out a formal statement on something, but hey, we can just tweet something. And that becomes their response in a, in a part of a conversation that they never were before. But what does that mean? I think we've talked about it here with clients of the precedent setting, that once you speak once, you know, that opens the door for people to come back to you again next time. And then you have to start considering what are the ramifications of when you speak when it's in your favor versus it's not always in your favor to, to comment and how, how businesses will navigate that. 
No, that's a great point. I mean, especially on, on a medium like Twitter, because it's an active, uh, it's an active audience, and so whatever you put out there, you're going to have to be able to respond to what comes back. And um, I think that that's right. If you're radio silent after you say something, um, you know, then you're opening yourself up. I think that that's. I think you raise a really good point. It's also not the entire audience. I think the only way, a, you know, a Twitter comment like that. Um, becomes a statement is when the media pick it up, which is what happened, and they amplify that voice, right? Otherwise, it just stays within. It's just a tweet. It's just a tweet. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, and Kaya mentioned we, with our clients, often we have to uh, think through the the issues around social media. Most most importantly, at what point does a social media engagement become become something that you actually have to respond to or have to address? Like, when when does it become organized enough that it, it calls for action? And it kind of brings me to a kind of a, a pivot on the question, but with news outlets, you have reader comments frequently on on stories. And I'm kind of curious, like, if you look at the reader comments, some of them are quite unpleasant, mm-hmm. and some are are pretty accurate or or you know offer uh, an interesting viewpoint. What goes on in the newsroom with that? That's a great. Yeah, that's uh, so we don't use reader comments. We have uh, at the Business Journal, um, our reader comments come off of Facebook. So we've sort of plugged in Facebook as the reader comments. So if readers on Facebook make a comment, then that's what shows up on our site. We used to use the um, that third-party vendor discuss um, was uh, was a medium. And before that, we just had our own, you know, way back in the day when everybody was still redoing websites, we had our own. But, um, you know, for the most part, I think the vast majority of comments on websites, is, I mean, it's just a cesspool. It's not really a lot of productive, you know, useful information. And so... They often turn on each other. They do. Too. It becomes sort of a battle that has nothing to do with whatever the story is. Absolutely. Um, so they're coming with their own agenda. And so, I mean, I don't think reporters pay any attention to them at all, really. I mean, if you know, if you look at the Globe or the Herald, like some of those comments are really funny. Like you can read them, but it has nothing to do with the story. And you're not, gonna, you're not going there, you know, to be edified or to learn something. You're, it's, it's all entertainment. And they know that, which is why they're, you know, they're bashing each other and they're getting into their spats. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of like being on Reddit, right? The same kind of thing. Yeah. Like you get, you get the good, you get the bad, you get the ugly, you get it all. And so if you have the time to sort and sift through the unvarnished, you know, reality of a comment section, well, good for you. I don't, I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> well, and it's also that they're faceless and nameless, which, you know, I think is unfair. Yeah. Um, for It sounds a little simple, but it to come out, uh, particularly when people attack, you know, a person that's talked about in a story um, or something that matters, it's, it's, you know, they turn on each other, that's their banter, if that's, you know, makes them happy, but... To me, it's the some of the vile comments that come from people, and you don't know who they are. And what would you would it be different in your case with Facebook? Their face and their name is, is attached to it. Um, I think the quality of the comments changes when you're anonymous versus 
public facing. It's far, far worse, no question about it. When they're anonymous, people have this sort of you know bravado that uh, it's it, really you can't stop them. But I'm always shocked at the people whose names are on Facebook and they still say some of the most vile things. True. And and you know we do have to censor those. I mean we'll pull those off of our site if something is just you know morally reprehensible or offensive. Um, we keep, you know we won't leave it up. And we have to take it down. But but then you ask, you know, then it begs the question, well, where's the line and how many of these do you take down and how often are you even policing it? Um, you know, we're, we're keeping an eye on it, but, you know, we're posting 20 stories a day and you don't know which one's going to blow up with comments. So it's, you know, it, it's not always easy to catch it right away. Yeah, you and those comments, to... it could come at two in the morning. It, yeah, they often do. <laughs> <laughs> So, Doug, you recently said that the Boston Business Journal used to be a print paper with an online edition. Um, now that's flipped. Um, how long are we going to have print editions? And, and what does that mean for the business, for the industry? Well, I appreciate that Kyan's making a sad face right now because uh, I, I hope that uh, we have print editions for, you know, forever and ever and always. But um, reader habits change and the way people consume information changes and the way people market and you know, buy advertising. You know, obviously has been shifting away from print for a while. But I mean, our, our print edition has a very loyal readership. We actually grew our print circulation last year. I mean, you know, single digit percentage, but still we grew wow. it. Yeah, and uh, we have you know partly I think because we have a niche audience that tends to be a little bit older. Uh, you know, C level executives tend not to be twenty somethings. They tend to be forty plus somethings, and so they still appreciate and read print. Um, so what we try to do is we allow print to be what print is good at, whether it's the layout, the design, um, you know, the things like our lists and our leads uh, that works really well, uh, along with, of course, our cover stories that, you know, work for print. Um, but uh, if we could predict when print is done, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, I think if you look at the dailies uh, or even ourselves, everybody's trying to transition to digital as fast as we can, but when I say that, I mean transition the revenue dollars to get to digital at the same level as the print dollars. And that's the hard part, right? Because print dollar advertising is a lot, you're making a lot more per ad in print than you are on digital. So really, you're, you know, you're taking all this print, you want to keep those print advertising dollars as high as you can for as long as you can while you're making that transition to digital. And we've been making the transition for several years now. And certainly the way we deliver the news online, you know, through emails online, social media, et cetera, et cetera, we're breaking news daily, and we didn't used to do that um, 10, 15 years ago. It was weekly. But uh, so we're a daily that happens to have a print edition. That's what I usually say. And, and uh, hopefully we'll, that will be the case for a long time because when Friday comes and you get the BBJ in the mail, I think it reminds people, oh, yeah, i got to make sure, you know, I, I take a look at this. It lands on your desk. It's right in front of you. It's not the same as online where you have to kind of hunt, for, you know, oh, I got to go look for information. You go look for it. We, you know, the delivery of a paper edition, whether it's the Globe or the BBJ or the Herald or whatever, when it lands on your doorstep or on your desk, that's your prompt to read it. Um, and it doesn't always hit your crowded inbox the same way when we send those emails. But that's the only real digital equivalent we have right now. Well, I think, uh, Doug, we want to thank you for coming in. Is there anything else you want to share with us today? No, thanks for having me. Thank you. We appreciate it. It's been fun. Great. Thank you. Thanks again, Doug, for coming in. And 
for our full unedited conversation, you can go to OA On Air Extra on SoundCloud or YouTube. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. Welcome to Two Minutes with Tom this week. Great to be back with you, Cayenne. Thank you. And we missed last week for a special edition episode, 2001, A Space Odyssey. But we are back, and we are talking about something um, I think that is more personal to maybe us as a company a little bit, but important for the entire country, really. Uh, The president attacking the media, discrediting the media, and calling members of the media fake news is not new. But in recent weeks, he's ratcheted up his attacks, or at least particular outlets, and said that the media is now the enemy of the people. I don't know. To me, this is unfathomable. Well, you're, uh, you, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're certainly feeling it because you come from the public relations and communication side of the house. You've, you've worked in the press and with the press for any number of years. And the folks here in this company who have, who have been in that position certainly know the difference between fake news and real news. They've all worked for legitimate news organizations and they've done a great job. So to hear the President of the United States refer to the fourth estate as fake news and the enemy enemy of the people is, is simply extraordinary to me. Um, I'm afraid of where it goes. I, I'm afraid that it gets almost, if not violent, frightening the people of the fourth estate to a point where they may not want to do their job or they may want to switch a job. But the essence of democracy and the reason we are able to have a balanced democracy is because of the fourth estate and the work that columnists and newspaper and people in the media do across across this country. You know, as a former politician, I didn't always like what was being written about me, but I wanted to defend their right to do that because it is the very platform, the very base of what this country is all about. CNN's Brian Stelter, who, along with Don Lemon, was threatened with being shot by a telephone caller uh, to his home. That's a frightening thing to have happen in in today's society, Uh, to to actually have somebody pick up the phone and make a threatening phone call because they, they, the caller said that they were, they were accosting the Trump supporters as being, as being racist. The fact of the matter is neither of those gentlemen ever, ever mentioned that or said that. Um, so I, I think there needs to be some slowing down and some calming down on, on the part of the Trump organization and the White House you know, to, to really soften these blows against the, the working press of the country. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. If you want to hear more from our interview with Boston Business Journal editor Doug Banks, Tune into our OA On Air Extra feature, which you can find on our website, O'NeillAndAssos.com, along with other great interviews and segments. And when you're done listening, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to you next week.